welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I am your host Tarun Gupta and to start I would like to wish you all a happy new year. My apologies for the silence over the past couple of weeks but we are back with an amazing lineup this year. Our guest today is Vishal Gar, founder and CEO of Better, the number one digital mortgage lender in America. Since its founding in 2015, Better has originated over $100 billion in home loans, all online and commission free. Before launching Better, Vishal dropped out of the investment banking analyst program at Morgan Stanley to start MyRich Uncle, which he grew to the second largest private student lender in the US. Vishal is also an advocate for leveling the playing field through public education. In 2021, he launched a partnership with the Fund for Public Schools in NYC, donating nearly $2 million to purchase Chromebooks, iPads, books and uniforms for New York City public school students. Join me as we explore Vishal's journey as a serial entrepreneur, how better is transforming the mortgage lending industry, Vishal's perspective on what makes America special, and the one professional decision that he would like to change. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Vishal, good morning. How are you? Hey Tarang, how are you? It's so nice to see you. Likewise. So where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from our offices here at the World Trade Center in New York. Amazing. So let's dive into the questions. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Sure. Um, feels like such a long time ago. I uh, started working on Wall Street as a order clerk, uh, basically, you know, processing trades that some of the traders had done on a trading desk and also just being an all-around gopher uh, almost 30 years ago. And uh, from that time, I then ended up being a trader uh, at a small emerging markets fund to being a banker at Morgan Stanley uh, to eventually going on a pitch with Mary Meeker uh, when I was a junior banker and realizing, you know, this was during the height of the dot-com bubble. I was like, I'm on the wrong side of the table. I was pitching some 24-year-old entrepreneurs who had created the Yahoo.com of Latin America. I was like, well, if they can do it, why can't I? So uh, without any job in hand, I just basically dropped out of the investment banking analyst program at Morgan Stanley back in, I think, 1998 and uh, said, I'm going to start a dot-com company. Uh, people told me that, you know, you should start a company that uh, that basically is something similar to where you, you've had some difficulty in your life with. And so me and my friends, we had trouble paying for college. And, you know, we, we basically worked almost full time all the way through. And I saw all my friends, you know, who either could take out a student loan or couldn't get a student loan. A lot of international students uh, struggle. So I said, well, I'm going to create a company that helps kids pay for college. And uh, I started the first online student loan company. And I didn't mean to get into fintech, but basically that was what it was. I mean, back then it wasn't called fintech. It was just called, you know, a dot com. And so I started myrichuncle.com. Uh, which became the uh, first online student loan company. Uh, I took it public when I was 26, uh, built it into the fourth largest student lender for private loans in the United States, uh, eventually sold the bulk of it to Merrill Lynch. Unfortunately, they shut it down. Uh, it was 2009 with the credit crisis. Um, I then spent a bunch of time fixing uh, broken loans, looking into servicing. Um, first into student loan servicing, we built uh, the largest special servicer for student loans in the country, then started doing mortgages, uh, mortgage, mortgage CDOs, built a large CDO and mortgage workout firm. And while I was doing all that, I um, I started to learn a little bit about the mortgage market. I went to go get a mortgage myself and the process was so broken. I was like, I could 
underwrite, reprice a mortgage loan in a mortgage-backed security in two seconds, but it takes, you know, a bank like Citibank 60 days to get a mortgage done. And so, you know, where's the disconnect? And uh, that's how I eventually came to my last company, uh, Better.com, which I started back now almost uh, seven years ago. And, uh, and, you know, we've built Better into what is the largest fintech by loan volume funded by over $100 billion of loans funded um, in the six years that we've been live. And we're making home ownership cheaper, faster, and easier for all Americans. So uh, something I'm pretty passionate about uh, is the use of fintech to lower costs of credit because uh, credit is the great socioeconomic equalizer, right? Without credit, there wouldn't be any economic progress. There wouldn't be any way for someone to buy a car and drive it so that they can feed their family and send their kids to college with a student loan, which then the kid can graduate and become a doctor, which then, you know, they can go and buy a home. Credit's a great socioeconomic mobilizer. I came to this country when I was seven years old and, you know, we came here with nothing. And um, credit has been this unique thing that helped my family uh, achieve the American dream. And I want to help every American family achieve the American dream. So let's talk about better. You touched upon briefly what it does, but could you elaborate on what the services offered are mm-hmm. and how did you go about building this? Sure. Uh, better is an online mortgage company. Uh, it's the largest discount online mortgage company in the United States. In addition to providing uh, mortgages uh, entirely commission-free, uh, we also now provide insurance and real estate services entirely commission-free to the consumers. And the way we went around building it was we saw a big problem that the consumers had, which is that it would take forever for them to get approved for a mortgage. So we use technology to automate the process of parsing your credit bureau, collecting your credit score, computing your debt to income ratio, uh, figuring out what the property that you want to buy is worth. And instead of doing it in three weeks, we basically made it a process online that could happen in three minutes. And we launched with that better.com, get pre-approved to buy any house in America in as little as three minutes. And so we launched that in 2016. And uh, from there, we've continued to add services that consumers need either in the home finance process, like title insurance, homeowners insurance, uh, which we integrate and make much cheaper for them, to services that they want, which is how do, if I'm moving from Connecticut to Florida, how do I find a good realtor in Florida? How do I know, you know what to do with the house that I have in Connecticut? And so we've kept on building into that ecosystem. And now um, in doing so, we've you know, financed over $100 billion of volume of uh, mortgages, over $20 billion of insurance policies, almost $5 billion of real estate transactions. Uh, we're trying to become the one-stop home ownership company. So when you first set out to build this system to automate the processes for mortgage financing, right? Did you do it yourself? Did you hire a team of engineers to do it? And how did you establish credibility with your initial customers? Um, Well, those are really great questions. I think, you know, I have been a technologist second, a financier first. And so I understand technology, but to actually build technology, uh, what I realized in the beginning was, Mortgages are ultimately the process of automating the approval process of mortgage, um, you know, is is a process of taking a set of customer attributes, your credit score, your income, your assets, uh, your debts, and a set of uh, property attributes, home price, where's the home located, what type of house is it, and so on and so forth. 
and then matching that to an investor who has criteria for all of those things. So, you know, people had done a lot of really great work in building matching engines that are one-way or two-way matching engines. Um, you know, an example is like, I want to buy a particular, you know, clothing product. And it's a, it sort of recommends me the three things like Amazon will tell you, hey, if you want there, you know, if you like this, you'll like this. Dating is a two-way match problem, right? You know, I want to meet someone who is X, has X, Y, and Z attributes. They want to meet somebody who has A, B, and C attributes. And then, you know, you match. What I realized what we were building here was a three-way matching problem um, because you have consumers and their attributes, properties and their attributes, investors with their criteria, and they have to do a try match. And so almost in a, you know, it's, it's almost like an arranged marriage. If you think about it in the Indian context, like you have multiple constituents involved. And so I actually sought out a technologist who had experience in building matching engines. You know, I went to the guy that originally had started uh, OkCupid, which is uh, a really strong, you know, dating um, and, 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 you know, uh, matching engine. And, uh, you know, he wasn't available. And then the next matching engine that I saw that was a great two-way matching engine was Spotify. Because it's um, and so I reached out to the person that had built the Spotify recommendation engine, a gentleman named Eric Bernhardson, and we met. And I told him about the problem that I was working on, which is matching every American to a home that they could afford easily uh, and instantly. And he thought that could be that was a problem that was super interesting. So we were able to get him to leave Spotify and come join us at the very earliest stages in our business. Um, you know, we didn't hadn't even raised any capital. It was I was just using my own money uh, to finance uh, the operations, and um, and so Eric Bernhardson joined, and then Eric recruited an engineering team, um, and uh, you know we recruited a product manager who had worked on Google Docs and Google Maps and had a ton of experience uh, as one of the earliest PMs at Google on both of those products, and we were able to start to think about um, how do we build an engine that enables the consumer to get something that takes three weeks answered nearly instantly. So talking about the mortgage industry, can you break it down for us? Can you talk to us about who are the key stakeholders, who are the major players, and what role do regulators play in this industry? It is post the credit crisis, possibly the most regulated industry in the United States. And, you know, that was one of the things that people were always scared about, right? Silicon Valley tends to uh, foster innovation in relatively unregulated industries. Um, and, you know, solving day-to-day problems. Now, mortgages is a once-in-a-seven-year problem for a consumer, um, and it's super highly regulated, but, you know, you pay your mortgage every day. 32% of personal consumption expenditure is housing. So, you know, while you're not use, you're using your mortgage every day and you're paying for it every day, you're making the decision every seven years, and so it's a very heavily regulated decision. The biggest players in the market are, from a regulation standpoint, the CFPB and the OCC and the FDIC from a banking system perspective, because they set the rules on what banks can do and originate in the mortgage market. From there, some of the other big players are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the FHA, who provide guarantees and create a secondary liquid market for mortgages. Um, and if in doing so, for about 95% of the mortgages in the country, they basically mandate what the requirements are. Now, you could say, well, that's a bad thing for innovation. But actually, it's a great thing for innovation because by having a government agency post the financial crisis, 
clearly set through the rules that need to be made for mortgages, what we realized is we could ha- build a rules engine that took all those rules that otherwise people were you know, manually computing with using humans in call centers and processing centers and all around America, and instead teach the machine the rules. And then effectively create a supervised learning network that would then process all through all those rules and take all the consumer data and only surface for the consumer the types of rules that are the types of questions that need, they needed to, to answer. Therefore, uh, the, the next uh, you know group of people that are important are mortgage investors. So there's about uh, ten major banks that actively buy mortgages, and then there's the Black Rocks and Pimcos of the world that actively buy and manage, you know, trillions of dollars of mortgages. And then there's the sovereign wealth funds that go and buy, you know, trillions of dollars of, and central banks that buy trillions of dollars of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac government guaranteed mortgage. So you have these very large marketplace constituents, right, that are engaged in transaction volume that's over a trillion dollars a day in the mortgage market. And what we learned was how to integrate and work with each of these regulated entities to enable them to transact with tiny little better in a seamless way. And by doing that, what we were able to do was create massive efficiency for the consumer because we were connecting the consumer at the front end to the lowest cost of capital, which were the final end owners of the product all the way at the back end and cutting out everyone else in between. Got it. And diving deeper into Better's business, right? What are your key revenue sources and how have they evolved over the years? Who are your biggest customer segments in the sense that what is the average size of a mortgage that is financed through Better? And do you have any big competitors? Yes. So Better's core business model relies on premiums that it earns for distributing the mortgage to investors. So uh, the consumer gets always, and this has been our mantra basically since 2017 when we launched it, uh, we've had a better low rate guarantee so or better price guarantee. So we guarantee that we have the lowest price for consumers all the time across the full range of products in every market that we offer uh, the product. And if a competitor has a cheaper rate, we will beat it. So one would say, well, then if you're always the cheapest all the time, how do you, how do you make any money? What we do is we aggregate the loans and what we're able to do by through the savings of using automation and technology is fundamentally make a superior product and then get paid a premium for that product from investors. So on average, the investors pay us a premium of about 2% of the loan balance. So on a $400,000 loan, we make about $8,000 in loan sale premium. And that comprises about 85% of our revenue in the mortgage sense. Uh, We make some interest income from holding and aggregating the mortgages. We make some income from servicing mortgages, but really 85% of our income is loan sale premium. We, unlike almost all the other fintech marketplaces, even having generated 100 billion of loans, we hold zero dollars of those 100 billion of loans that we generated on our balance sheet. So we are a true marketplace. Um, And, you know, we've maintained that ethos all the way through. The customer segments, uh, our average loan size is about $400,000, which is, you know, your average middle American, uh, middle class, uh, upper middle class American mortgage consumer. We find that our customers tend to be educated, tech savvy uh, families uh, that are saving centric. The type of family that, you know, our, our, our prototypical customer is the Costco dad, about 38 to 54 years old. Um, 
seeking do-it-yourselfer, seeking to save money for their family. And so that's why consumers uh, sort of come to us. Um, we have other market segments that we've been able to generate ex- uh, enormous value for. Uh, single women. Single women comprise about 17% of our customer base. Why? Because in the United States, you know, in the 1970s, actually, if you were a single woman and you wanted to go get a mortgage, you literally needed your husband or your father to co-sign. And so absolutely ridiculous, the kind of general, you know, uh, historical challenges that the mortgage industry has, has, has sort of had. Um, so we find a lot of single women come to better because they're able to do it themselves and to have, they appreciate the transparency. We are also very strong in the LGBTQ community and in minorities, particularly in the Southern states, right? Because you can imagine those are constituents that are, have historically been discriminated against. And so walking into a traditional bank branch is something that is like as appealing to them as going to the dentist. Um, what we're able to do for them is provide them an online process where they're transacting and they're getting the lowest price based on the criteria and their attributes, not based on, you know, their, 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 their consumer behavioral preferences or, or who they are, what they do. So those are some market segments that we've been able to, to, to generate. We've done over $15 billion of CRA and low moderate income and minority loans in the country. Uh, that is significantly greater than most of the big banks out there, right? So you see all these big banks, you know, talking about serving all these communities. We don't even actively try and market to these communities, but they come to us because of the promise of better, right? It's cheaper, it's faster, it's easier. And in doing all of that, it's just much, 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 much better. So that, that's what we've always tried to kind of create as our three value propositions. Those are our three value p- pillars. It's cheaper. That's what gets you in the door. It's faster. That's what you know keeps you going. And the amount of time it would take for you to call up some other mortgage company, you could already be approved. And it's easier and therefore and transparent. It's educating you along the way on life's most expensive personal consumption expenditure. And by going with us, you could save as much as $30,000 over the life of your loan. That's literally like $1,000 a year. And that's, you know, many more soccer classes. That's another Disney vacation. That, that's really meaningful to an average American family. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of how we've always gone to market. Also, talking about other participants, right? So how do you incorporate real estate agents or banks into this process? And what is the value proposition that you offer for these guys? Uh, for a realtor, the value proposition is that my, your customer will get approved with better in the time that they'll stay on hold with Rocket or with Wells Fargo or with Chase. And, you know, with respect to the banking system, for the banking system, banks make money not by originating mortgages. Banks make money by holding mortgages on their books, right? So a bank pays you an average deposit rate of one and a half percent. Today, a mortgage is yielding an average of six percent. So the bank is making 450 basis points a year holding that mortgage on, the, on their books. For origination, it costs a bank almost 2x to originate a mortgage is what it costs us to originate. So they're much better off paying us 2% to buy a mortgage that they can then hold on their books than they are actually doing, uh, doing you know, going and making a branch, putting a loan officer in there and harry the loan officer at your local branch who is there Tuesdays and Thursdays at branch A and on Mondays and Wednesdays at branch B. And if you happen to like go and see him and on a day he's not there at branch A, then you've got to wait and come back. 
it's a mess. Like we are talking about a country where we have 4,000 banks with 72,000 branches around the country. And most of them predate the creation of the internet. And so most of the mortgage banking system exists as if the internet was never invented. So uh, consumers and particularly post the pandemic, it just, you know, the idea of walking into a branch to go get a mortgage, which the bulk of Americans still do is, uh, you know, is an outdated mechanism. So that's why we think that, you know, with the banking system, we say we don't compete with the banks. The banks make money by holding mortgages. That's their core business, right? It's one of the core utility functions of a bank is to help consumers or uh, depositors buy a home. Um, You know, if you like watch It's a Wonderful Life, that's the core role of a local bank. So we don't compete with them. We compete with their people and their branches. And our job is to generate a loan at a cheaper price than what a bank could generate at a branch with a better customer, you know, in a faster and easier way. So Better itself has had phenomenal growth and you are backed by some key investors, including Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. How did you go about selecting the right investors for the venture? Um, In the beginning, I can tell you when we were doing our Series A, it was really, really hard. Almost every firm in Silicon Valley turned us down. Uh, because what we wanted to do was create a mortgage company that was full stack. We didn't just want to make leads. We didn't just want to make mortgage software. They said, well, why don't you just take your thing and sell your software to banks? I was like, because it wouldn't be better. It'd be worse, right? It would just be a company that was helping create an online version of a retail store that wasn't actually cheaper, faster, or easier for consumers, right? Um, and so it was. we got turned down for our Series A by every Silicon Valley VC. We were really happy that the Folks at Goldman Sachs, they could tell that the world needed something better in mortgages post the global financial crisis, which the mortgage industry basically caused, and that the incumbents were in no way, shape, or form incentivized to actually make something better because they were earning such massive surplus profits. And so Goldman had no mortgage business. So unlike many of the other banks, didn't have any mortgage business other than mortgage trading. And they knew that you know something different would make sense. So we were really happy to get Goldman in into the capital structure in uh, as our Series A partner, and they were amazing for us. It was interesting that we launched, and in the first year of launch in 2016, we went from doing um, you know 20 million of loans a month to 100 million of loans a month. The product just took off, cheaper, faster, easier. Just worked. It clicked. Um, it was funny actually in the beginning how it clicked. We realized that we could buy leads on the internet uh, on nights and weekends way cheaper because your traditional mortgage banker worked nine to six. And so they would go to the physical branch office. They'd buy, you know, they would buy leads. They would buy, advertise on the internet and they would get them in at nine to six. At 6.01 p.m., the price of leads just cratered. So we were the nights and weekends lender. And we basically just used that to build our business. So we would start buying leads at 6.01 p.m., and keep going till 8:59 a.m. And we would let and they would consumers would come in on the off the internet, they would self-serve, they'd get pre-approved, and then if they wanted to talk to somebody, they could talk to somebody. We were always 24/7, you know, to kind of begin with. And you know, but we encouraged consumers to sort of self-serve. So, um, that was an ethos that was uh well-branded within us. That led us to meeting the folks at Kleiner Perkins who were amazing. And you know, they were really interested. They thought what we were building by going after the big category, not like going after 
you know, unsecured installment loans or credit cards or auto loans, right, which are all like 1%, 3%, 5% of consumer finance. By going after the thing that's the 85% of consumer finance, they were like, wow, you're going to actually build the superstore. You're going to build the thing that has the product that everyone needs and is a point of pain. And then once you do that product, you can sell every one of these other products. And their background and ethos was just awesome. They were about growth and customer experience. And how do you design a product that's a, a long cycle product that is so beautiful that consumers just come and trust you for the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And you have to make that available. So we got them on board for our Series B. Um, from our Series B to our Series C, we grew another 300% in the course of uh, two years. I can tell you that was hard. We went to another phase where we were the most wanted startup, fintech startup that everybody wanted to invest in in our Series B. And then our Series C was just rough. Uh, you know, we didn't have like 15% month on month growth. And so a lot of firms just sort of walked us out. So we realized if we need to be, you know, attracting the best investors, we need to be able to hit that metric of 15% month on month growth. And uh, so we really, but we started to make strides. We started to move away from not just being the nights and weekends lender online to actively taking in um, and servicing a broader range of customers uh, with not just refinance transactions, but purchase transactions, finding out ways that we could acquire traffic organically, um, creating value propositions that were too hard for anyone to just ignore. And so by 28, 2019, we started getting a lot more uh, interest from strategic investors. So Ally Bank invested, Citibank invested, uh, Progressive Insurance invested over time, Pingon Insurance, the largest life insurance company in the world, invested. And over time, we have continued to build relationships with these strategic investors because with them, not only are we able to get an investor, but we also get access to their customer base and to providing mortgages for their customer base, which is what we do with Ally and American Express, who are two of our largest strategic investors. In the current situation where there's an economic uncertainty in the American economy, right, and the housing market is in a downturn, how do you strategize to navigate this and has it affected your risk management criteria or tools? So I would tell you that, you know, three years ago, the pandemic just started and I was worried. I was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Right. People are going to stop buying houses. People, are, people aren't going to go into other people's houses. Right. Are, we're, we're done. We're toast. And then the day after the pandemic started, interest rates started going down and people started refinancing and nobody wanted to walk into a bank branch to refinance. So we literally grew in 2020 900 percent. We scaled the business nine and we couldn't keep up with the volume. We couldn't keep up. We literally, the automation couldn't keep up. The offshoring couldn't keep up. Nothing could keep up. It was just endless uh, customer demand. And uh, we felt bad because these customers, if we, you know, we were built to make this business cheaper, faster, easier, and we wanted them to save money. And so we stretched ourselves to accommodate all that growth. And then we grew again in 2021 by the middle of 2021, we were bigger than Bank of America in the mortgage business. And that is for a five, at that time we were five years old. Can you imagine like a five-year-old being bigger than Tom Brady, right? In football, it was just impossible. These, these are other institutions. And then as the pandemic wore down and then, you know, as the stimulus started contracting and, you know, rates have gone up, 
it's been really difficult. So, uh, you know, we had to downsize. And we could see immediately what the changes in the interest rates were doing to consumer demand. So we started downsizing early. I think it's now everyone in the tech industry is downsizing. They're seeing what's happening, you know, as a pandemic stimulus. We do think that there's going to be a recession. But we do think that consumers need homes to live. More than ever before, the pandemic has reestablished home as an object of desire, right? So after the global financial crisis, people are like, no one's going to buy homes. Everyone's going to rent. Or are they going to Airbnb? Why would you ever want to own a home? To get foreclosed on, you never want to own a home, lose your life savings. That was what the mood was when we first started the company in 2014, 2015. That was what the mood still was. Now, homes are, quote unquote, cheaper than they've ever been before because we spend more than half our waking lives in them. In the old days, we used to get home at six and then, you know, be awake from six to 10 and then, you know, go to sleep. Now we're working in our homes, we're living in our homes, we're vacationing in our homes, we're doing a lot more things in our homes. And so on a cost per hour basis, homes have never been cheaper before. So we remain super enthusiastic, which is why we're leaning into innovation, uh, leaning into this market that is that is really, really bad. I would say last, I would say, you know, 2022 is all been about survival. Like we need to be the lowest cost producer. We need to generate value for consumers who are, uh, because oil prices have gone up, food prices have gone up, are seeking more value more than ever before. And we have to just tighten our belts. So we're not blitzscaling growth. We are de-blitzscaling growth. And so a lot of things that are nice to have, so we basically had to you know, say, okay, put a pause on it. That's a nice to have. Put a pause on it. That's a nice to have. Put a pause on it. Does this provide value to the consumer is always a good framework. Does it make it cheaper? Yes. Does it make it faster? If it makes it cheaper, do it. If it makes it faster, do it. If it makes it easier, think about doing it. Because when the consumer is cash strapped, they may not care as much about easier than when they're flush. Um, So we have been focused on cheaper and faster. And you're going to see some amazing stuff coming out of us uh, next year and the year after that as we rise, you know, like a phoenix out of what's happening in the recession. Again, the best companies... I remember 20 years ago, this time, it was 2002. I was living in my parents' basement in Queens because my company, uh, we didn't have any more funding and we just had to make do. And I had a budget that I had, you know, $2,000 a month to spend. So I had $24,000 is what I was living on per year. I had $2,000 a month to spend. So I, I couldn't afford to live in Manhattan anymore. I had to move back to my parents' basement in Queens. And at that same time, there were companies, all the dot-com companies were going bust. But at that time, you know, people at, in Seattle were working on launching Amazon Prime. They were working on AWS. And they were working on those things not to win, but they were working on them to survive, to continue to differentiate and to create a against the incumbents who everyone thought, well, the incumbents just won. No, the incumbents never win. You just have to stay alive to the point where the incumbents capitulate. And so that's what we're doing. That's a great segue to the next question. What's your vision for the next five years? Where do you want to take better.com? Where we are taking better.com is enabling any American family to transact, to buy, sell, invest in real estate in one day. And that's down from 60 days, what it takes now. 
And that means we have to consolidate everything that Zillow does, everything that Open Door does, everything that Rocket Mortgage does, everything that Chase does, everything that Fannie Mae does, all into one flow, everything that your realtor does, all into one flow and deliver it to the consumer and make everything that otherwise would be like, we will be back to you to here you are. And um, it's quite a tall challenge, but I'm more excited than I have ever been because we are well capitalized. We've got over half a billion dollars of capital. We've got an amazing team and we have a mission to make homeownership cheaper, faster, easier for all Americans and then everyone else. And so, you know, honestly, what else would I rather be doing? My next question is more macro in the sense that what are some segments within the fintech industry that you think will shape its growth for the next five years? I think there's going to be something that comes out of student loans that's different from what is there today. It's a messed up industry. I mean, it's so messed up that the U.S. government has to go to the actual act of forgiving hundreds of billions of dollars of loans, right? That there's a trillion dollars of loans created with, you know, no underwriting and no one knows how to pay for things and, you know, and, and they're a burden. So I think there's going to be something in fintech land that comes along that solves the student loan mess. I think there's going to be something that comes along that ties wages and credit together and gives people credit for working and does it at a cheaper rate than the traditional credit card, right? There should be a uh, credit card for people who are working and for the things that enable them to work. And there should be a credit card for people who are like buying Jimmy Choo's or, you know, a fancy air fryer, right? Like, you know, there's two different things. There should be a credit card for working and a credit card for consuming. As the home ownership transaction goes from being 60, 90 days and the largest store of assets that a consumer has today, $34 trillion, of which 20 trillion is equity in locked in houses, becomes liquid. Can you imagine what 20 trillion, the full stimulus package was 5 trillion and like given out kind of willy nilly. Imagine if 20 trillion of people's home equity can be unlocked. That would be an extraordinarily powerful engine for growth in this country, uh, for socioeconomic mobility in this country. So I think people are going to solve these problems in the next five years. I think there's going to be a new generation of fintech. I would say a lot of the fintech that came out over the past 10 years has been, um, you know, .com 2.0, like putting a website on top of a spreadsheet, uh, you know, and, you know, connecting it. I think there's going to be, you know, spreadsheets talking to spreadsheets, you know, databases talking to databases and the consumer just pressing a button to permission. And I think that's, you know, the next evolution. And I, all of these things that we talked about in this last batch of fintechs, like machine learning and AI and all that, which were mostly used for marketing, not really for actually decisioning. I think in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see some of that actually get used in decisioning. And I think that's going to be pretty cool. I love the passion. For my next segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person, as an individual to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. Thank you. The first one is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? I love 90s hip hop. Who's your, who's your favorite artist? Uh, Biggie Smalls. Three, maybe. Biggie Smalls? Uh, you're a New York guy, right? So, uh, 
you mentioned about the student financing or student debt uh, problem, right? Do you feel that we are reaching a point where the cost of education almost no longer justifies the outcomes? Or is there a need for democratization of this industry? I think we reached the point where actually the cost of credit exceeded the cost of uh, exceeded the economic rate of return almost about, you know, back in 2007. And I think the economic rate of return today is like 3% and the cost of credit is something around 7 to 8% uh, as taken by the federal government. So I think most people, at least half the people, in, you know, taking a student loan today are making a bad business decision. Uh, I think something has to change. I think the colleges are sitting on endowments and I think the colleges have to self-fund. I think, you know, General Motors funds the cars that, it sells you. I think uh, there's no reason the colleges shouldn't be funding the educations they sell to you. You have had amazing success as an entrepreneur and repeated success as an entrepreneur. What are some principles that you have adopted that have served you well in this journey? Work harder than anyone else. Never give up. Work harder than anyone else again. But how do you direct those efforts in the right direction? Ask a lot of questions of people so first, find and seek people who you would want to be. When you get to meet them, ask them all the questions that are in your head. Don't let them go. Just ask them all these questions. And if they think that you're going to be willing to do the most with them, which you demonstrate by working harder than anyone else, they will likely answer those questions for you. I have been so blessed that I have learned from so many people that I grew up reading books about. And I would just seek them out and I would ask them questions and I just keep asking them questions and I keep asking them questions. And, and I am so surprised at the generosity of spirit in America. And, you know, people will do so much to invest in other people without any desire for any financial gain whatsoever, but they will do so much. And I think that's really, really the, one of the best things about America. How did you choose your founding team or how do you choose a founding team and initial set of employees? What do you look for? People who are better at me than me at the things I'm not good at. And how do you assess that? Well, if you're not very good at it, then you just got to ask a lot of questions about all the things. And if they've got some answers or they seem like they're willing to go and work together and get the answers, then you've got somebody there. Listen, startups are hard. They're really, really hard. They're not like the same hard as being a banker or a consultant, in which case you put in a lot of hours, but like there are these safeguards, there are these, you know, and you kind of, there's not a lot that you could do to monstrously mess up at a place like Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. Like the thing will keep going, but like at a startup, every meeting that you have an external stakeholder, is like a make or break meeting, right? And you could totally go the wrong way. And so when I think about, uh, you know, how you prevent that, you just got to ask a lot of questions. You got to be constantly asking questions of yourself. You got to always be, you know, you have to have this desire to learn, like curiosity. You have to be willing to get paid in like learning rather than earning. And eventually that like translates that learning to earning thing changes when you have some realization event. But in the meantime, you got to be paid in learning. You got to be willing to get paid in learning. If you had a time machine and you could go back in time, is there any decision that you would change or undo? I wouldn't have given up at my rich uncle. I gave up. It was onto something. The consumers were clicking. They were coming. And the credit crisis came 
And we tried to hang on and we tried to hang on. And at some point in time, I decided, wow, this is just too hard. But, you know, if I had hung on another couple of months, you know, the, the, the government bailed out all of the big companies and, you know, that company would have been great. And um, ultimately, the decision to give up was a personal one. Right now, you can come up with all sorts of excuses, but at some point in your mind, you have to decide that I give up and I want to move on to the next thing. I shouldn't have given up. That's why. I, that's why. I, that's my biggest lesson: never give up, never quit. Ted Turner says this: "It's like never quit, ever, ever, ever quit. Quitters never win, and winners never quit." On that note, I'll let you go. But thank you so much, Vishal. I love the conversation. Thank you so much, Tarun, for having me. I really appreciate it. Good luck. Take care. you for listening to today's episode of the work in fintech podcast if you like the show then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at work in fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry As always, special thanks to our editor Rafael Ostiria. Signing off until next time. I'm your host Tarang Gupta.